I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Borderlines. On today's episode, Steve and I are joined by our friend and colleague Pantea Jafari to discuss the Canadian Immigration Department's response to the crisis in Israel, the West Bank and Gaza. We're aware that this is a subject that has people have very passionate views about on both sides of this conflict. And uh, I can say it has been exceedingly difficult for myself and I think for all of us uh, to, to offer some uh, intelligent, intelligible uh, thoughts uh, about the program offerings that have come out of the department. I just really want to thank Pantea for offering the insight she has and the feedback that she is receiving from practitioners who are trying to assist people in making these applications and the feedback that she's had from government representatives in response to questions that have arisen and just ask for some kindness and empathy in response to the struggle that we've all had in trying to just put forward the information uh, and our own concerns and conflicts uh, around uh, the programming in this area. Uh, thank you, and I do hope um, this is of some uh, help and insight to some of you. Thank you. So, yeah, what we're talking about today is... Canada's immigration response as of January 19, 2024, to the ongoing war between Hamas and Israel. And what Deanna Pantea and I were just discussing is how sorry, this... Sorry, 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 sorry. Um, January 9th was the launch of the program, if that's what you're referring to. Oh, no, no, I just meant today's date. Oh, oh, it's the 19th. Yeah, yeah, no, just that. Like, oh, like, in case we record this and tomorrow Canada's like program canceled or something like that, it's like, all right, but it. Okay. it will be out of date. But yeah, just that it is a, um, you know, it's a, it's a touchy subject. Um, 
I wrote an article for LinkedIn that I posted where, you know, it seems like some people were reading into every word for something that they might may find criticism with and uh, even calling like, you know, saying that uh, the Hamas attacks against Israel, I had one person respond saying they aren't Hamas attacks, it's a Hamas defense. And so we just asked that, like, you know, everyone kind of, we're, we're not here, we're not taking positions necessarily on the conflict. I think we all probably have nuanced and different views on it and our goal, or like possibly different views. I don't actually know what your views on the conflict are, Deanna and Pantea. Um, but our goal is to discuss more the immigration response and that people should not be on, hanging on our every word especially in a live unscripted conversation to try to like read into what we're saying or anything like that um i don't know if any of you have any other caveats before we get started on uh, describing the immigration response thus far yeah so i i would just add that um you know me personally i understand it's an extremely emotionally charged issue there's so many layers of trauma um at play that people are coming to the topic with it's there's generational trauma, collective trauma in injustice, trauma, all layered together uh, based on people's experiences. And it's not limited to the two communities. It's, uh, you know, something that everyone is dealing as they witness and grapple with this issue. And so uh, the, the point of the discussion that I've come to have is on Canada's response. And I, I'm not, touching the the conflict itself and uh the other thing that i just caveat up front is i'm not representing any individual applicants in this program uh, i have and continue to advise lawyers and community organizations uh, but i i made the decision that i just did not want the the anxiety of individual applicants um based on my own capacity issues presently that's a good point. I don't have any uh, applications in the program as well. I, I'm certainly in touch with people that I have enough, a lot of information about what's happening, uh, but it's not from direct clients of, of my firm. Yeah. Um, that being said, I think our firm might have one or two Israelis uh, who are applying for open work permits under the measures. Um, so why don't we actually start with, there's three public policies that Canada has announced um, as a response to the conflict between Hamas and Israel. And the first is basically an open work permit program for anyone who is in Canada and who is an Israeli citizen or a Palestinian passport holder. And actually, this was the post that I had written about on LinkedIn that, um, you know, some people were commenting because the media is only focused on the program, the thousand visas that are available for people from Gaza. And there hasn't, and that led some people to say, oh, well, what about Israel? What about Israel? And there is a program for Israelis and Palestinian passport holders who are in Canada, uh, basically to get three-year open work permits. It's kind of a similar measure that the government has done for uh, Turkish and Syrian people who were impacted by a recent earthquake. I can't remember the exact date of the earthquake, as well as anyone from Iran who is in Canada. And the the only additional comment that I'll have about the program for Israelis, and this was my LinkedIn post, is that it actually arguably is the most generous 
immigration program in recent history to people of a certain country, because unlike Iran, Turkey, Israel, even the recent Ukraine measures, is Israelis don't need a visa to travel to Canada. So like in theory, you know, this won't happen, but in theory, everyone in Israel who has an Israeli passport could travel to Canada and get a three-year open work permit. Um, so that's that program. I don't know if either of you have any comments about the program for Israeli or Palestinian Authority passport holders. Uh, just to clarify that they don't need to have be residing in either of those uh, places as long as right. they have passports. So they can, be, you know, have taken up residence any other country and suddenly decide this is a good opportunity for them and come and avail themselves. Yeah. Or they can be that. current, you know, people from Israel or Palestinian passport holders who are in uh, Canada. Um, I don't actually know how many people who are of Palestinian descent have Palestinian pa or Palestinian passport holders, let alone have visas, um, because the program is not a visa program for Palestinian passport holders. It's for people who are already in Canada. So the reason why I say it's you know very generous to Israelis as opposed to say Palestinians is that um, an Israeli can apply for an electronic travel authorization. Most will probably be approved within seconds, if not, you know, minutes, uh, whereas Palestinian passport holders living in the West Bank or Gaza have to apply for visas, which are much harder to obtain. Which so, is so this is a comment that I wanted to say, is that, that, for example, there have been similar initiatives, let's say around Iran, where people from Iran who are already in Canada were able to get open work permits. But what that did was immediately cause a an increase in the rates of refusal of visa applications uh, from people trying to, to to get to Canada from Iran. So I think that this is where when you're looking at trying to compare the measures that are being offered to Israelis and the 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 measures that are being offered to uh, those with passports from the Palestinian Authority, the inequity really does show up because trying to get a visa at becomes far more difficult as soon as the officer knows that that person can immediately get an open work permit the rate of refusal on the basis that you're going to come to Canada and then and then not return at the end of the period authorized for your stay the practical reality is that that skyrockets and so these policies might look neutral on their face but we as practitioners know that in reality uh trying to get one of those visas issued becomes next to impossible and so i think that to go back to the the kind of the preamble the cautionary statements that we're making i think on the podcast we've always um spoken about policies that come up and talk about just the implications of these things and for us to not talk about this policy did feel like it bumped even louder than than not speaking about it. And so that was sort of the thing for me. I do recognize that this this podcast will elicit strong reactions. It has already had an extremely divisive uh, effect on on the bar. 
um, and, you know, people being labeled in, in inflammatory language kind of um, flinging back and forth. But I think that those disparities do need to be highlighted because um, the, 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 the way that they look as being neutral on their face um, is just so not the case in reality. Yeah. And I just pulled up on the share screen a copy of the policy, uh, in part because the second policy is it always is a little bit confusing to me to read as to who it's trying to capture. Um, and the second policy is basically the family members of Israeli citizens and Palestinian passport holders who are not citizens of either of those countries who can also get work permits. And this one has the um, the limitation that they have to have been in Israel or the Palestinian territories and left after October 7th. 2023. So I would assume that this policy is much more, I mean, this policy does seem much more narrow and is designed to capture a very specific um, subset of people. And the third policy, which will probably form the bulk of our discussion and certainly is the one that the media has focused on, as has the, uh, the minister, is the policy uh, for people who are in Gaza, who have extended family members in Canada to get a visitor visa to come here. Um, when the policy was initially announced by the minister, it didn't have a cap. Well, I shouldn't say that because the policy had a cap, but the press release didn't mention the cap. So the first thing to note about the policy um, is that it is limited to 1,000 applications. Now, the minister has given interviews in which he has said that it's not a hard cap and that, that the fact that it's a hard cap is being misreported almost. I don't understand that interpretation because it clearly says that the policy will expire once 1,000 applications have been accepted into processing. They can certainly, as with any law, change that. Um, but it is limited to 1,000 applications. I don't know yet if they've received 1,000 applications, um, but they have. that is what it's limited to. So perhaps I can, I would like to, my role to not be necessarily criticism. I, I, I'm mainly here because I want to spread correct information about this program because there's lots of panic and lots of confusion because uh, some things were relayed um that were later changed and whatnot so i just i want to use the opportunity to do that and also i can hopefully use the opportunity to provide some explanations that the government has provided for better or for worse i mean it is the the logic and reasoning that they've provided so um your listeners may want to have all that information in one place so in terms of the cap the thousand that you're talking about the um, minister's agents have uh, suggested that's because they, they've introduced the number so low initially because they're concerned about people getting out uh, of that area and they're not sure how many will actually even be able to get out. So it's like a preliminary kind of test uh, policy in some ways to see how many people can avail themselves of this opportunity and get out. And then they're monitoring that to change that number if required is my understanding of what the minister means by that flexibility that you were referring to. Yeah. 
Um, do you know if the cap has been reached? No, it hasn't. It hasn't been reached yet. Um, For a lot of problematic reasons, which we can discuss. Yeah, let's let's maybe describe. Uh, we'll go back to I'll go back to just quickly summarizing the eligibility, which is that the person must apply for a visa. They must be the extended family member of a Canadian or a Canadian permanent resident who's in Canada, which is the spouse, common law partner, child, regardless of age grandchild, parent, grandparent, or sibling of an anchor um, who is in Canada. The use of the term anchor I found interesting initially because, you know, there's a lot of the other term where anchor is used is anchor baby. And there's been a bit of pushback on the use of the word anchor. But um, I just, there was something I noted when it was in the policy that that term is now just being used in policy. There's a lot of requirements on anchors. Uh, they have to be a Canadian citizen or permanent resident over 18. I guess they don't have to be. I misspoke before, I guess. Maybe they don't have to be in Canada, but they have to intend to reside in Canada. Can't be subject to a removal order in jails. Can't have certain convictions um, and basically be financially solvent. Uh, they have to declare that they will meet their extended relatives from Gaza at the airport in Canada to transport them to wherever they're going, provide orientation, like public transportation, banking, basically help them integrate into Canada, provide for their basic financial needs and help them settle. Is um, it helpful if I layer in commentary and lived experiences as you go through this? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's start with the part one of the anchor size. So uh, as most will likely be aware, it's now it, it's introduced as a two step process. So the process itself is unique and new and not something that we've experienced with um, other programs. And the process was announced at the same time that the program went live, which was also problematic because people in a state of duress to try to meet that quota were now reading these instructions and trying to figure out how to comply. But um, so the first stage is the anchor relative, the Canadian has to fill out uh you know, an, an expression of interest, basically provide some information and be vetted as uh, an eligible anchor relative to then um, allow the family members to make a TRV application. So with this stage, the the problems that we've been um, hearing from the community and from representatives is uh, there's a been a lot of nuanced discussions about the statutory declaration. So initially it was envisioned that you could fill one statutory declaration for all of the family members you wish to include. So that could be 30, for example. Um, and then uh, the messaging seemed to be that it should be for every principal applicant. Um, and some information is that it should be for every single family member. So there isn't quite enough clarity on instructions around a lot of little parts of it, including this. Uh, and uh, the so the the advice that we've been that I've been given uh, giving colleagues and and community organizations is to uh, have at least one for every principal applicant. So if you're going to do uh, a family unit, a husband and wife and some children that 
meet that definition and can be together fine but if it's let's say like uh, then a sister who's who's on their own then that sister should get a stat deck and and whatnot is is the would be what i would do for clients just to be sure did applications bounce over this or so here's the situation so the Hmm. practical problem that we've been seeing is some people started receiving codes right away which was really welcome and super and amazing Many did not. So I'm aware that after nine days, I don't know what what the nine day is, but many at the nine day mark started getting refusals of that anchor stage one process saying that there's an issue with the statutory declaration when council cannot discern an issue. So we've had situations where multiple council have looked at the stat deck to see what could be the problem and there isn't one. Um, and it's obviously problematic that A, it's coming nine days later, B, it seems to be incorrect in and of itself, and C, when you then call the the resources dedicated for this program, they seem to be just repeating the information they see on their screen, which is that there was a problem. There seems to be no ability to really get through that there seems to be something wrong. Can someone really look at it much more closely and let me know what's happening? Because we're not sure if the, um, so because the government has run it both stages on a first come first serves basis, they are going to give out more than a thousand confirmations of the anchor, presumably, right? So we're not sure how tight that race for time is. And then once they get <clears throat> the codes per family member if the anchor is approved, then there's a second running clock for them to submit, for the family members to submit their TRV applications. um, And a complete application will then be registered one by one against the thousand, right? So (laughs) so we're now experiencing... Sorry, this leaves quite aside the fact that this statutory declaration in the first place is something like, as you said, it's something that we haven't experienced before. So this, when I look at it, the statutory declaration looks sort of like a sponsorship (laughs) in terms of the amount of detail that they're asking of the sponsor, just the types of information that it's looking for. And while I'm not going to question whether or not that's okay or not okay, that's not the point, it is the same type of information we typically see. And as you said from the outset, that's not something we've normally seen in support like an invitation to support somebody to come as a, as a visitor. Yeah. It's um, not something we see in the TRV streams as an invitation yeah. sample. And it's not something we've seen in the humanitarian policy streams like the Iran and, and the other policies. Yeah, so, they are bringing um, it. It's going to be the same, I think, for the Sudan measures that they've mm-hmm. introduced. Because that, so this, I mean, it may be, it's unclear yet if it's going to be limited to these two programs or if it will become more of the norm. So so the other aspect of the statutory declaration is that it, it, it seems to be seeking some sort of obviously financial and other commitment, right? Uh, so on that side, it's kind of akin to a group of five sponsorship, where you're saying, I will do settlement work, I'll get them from the airport, I'll introduce them to institutions, get bank accounts, this, that. Um, but the government has confirmed that this is not an enforceable declaration, So there's going to be no monitoring and and no resources spent on the next steps, which again raises the question of then why, right? So So 
just to be clear, so like if if a person from Gaza does go on social assistance, it's not the same as in the family class where the provincial government could go after the anchor the same way that they would go after the sponsor in the family class application? That is what the government officials have advised. Yeah. What pans out in reality, I don't authority. know. So I'm just, yeah. I'm, ju I'm just here to share the information that I have gathered from government consultations, government's responses to media reports, and what's happening on the ground in the community. So it's it's just sharing information. I'm not necessarily even taking a position either way, and nor do I know whether any of it will pan out. Just I get it. Yeah, sharing but I mean, from what you're saying, Pente, I understand that. Like, I, uh, the, I mean, it's the same sort of thing that they've said to us in the past about when somebody tries to offer a sponsorship undertaking in the context of a humanitarian and compassionate application. There's just no regulatory authority to bind that sponsor, exactly. and so it's this sort of thing where promise, promise, promise. But again, it's not a, it's not a contract. It's just a declaration, and so. Um, these are these are gestural. Uh, yeah, gestural yeah. is is a good way of putting it because nor can like there are there are many Canadians who have large family groups that would come under this program, right? So when you're thinking of okay, one or two people, maybe, but when you're making a commitment to to provide these kinds of services and resources to thirty plus people, there's really no realistic capacity for the person to even accept that right but they they're going to make best efforts they're going to try to get the community behind them so yeah um, i mean the the utility yeah. of it is questionable yes yeah and i've been emailing sorry oh no go ahead I told them in advance that I was uh, i was all tongue tied i didn't know what i was going to say and here i am like i, I can't stop talking but um you know, it also, for me, the mixed messaging of all of this, like, is this about economic viability? Is this about humanitarian relief? Like, I find the whole thing very confusing. Is it about, do you have the financial means to support? Or is it trying to provide a way for people, for innocent civilians to try and escape a situation? Like, to me, I, I'm very confused by the messaging of all of this. And I, again, I, I understand yeah. that there are lots of there's, there's lots, I understand all the politics and all the confusion around yeah. this, but I don't think that there is a clear message as to, to what the objective of this program is. <laughs> I think one of the biggest problems with how this program has been rolled out is exactly that. Um, there isn't clear communication, clear messaging. And don't get me wrong, I certainly understand that the government is in a really difficult position. These are uh, you know, really, really emotionally and politically charged situations. Both communities are, I'm sure, lobbying for all kinds of um, uh, things that they think are important. So I'm sure they're caught in between some uh, tight uh, circumstances. And possibly that's the reason why they're not making clear communications, because if they say something, one side or the other might take issue with it. But in doing that, they're causing not only anxiety for both communities, but also tension between the communities. So we're, I'm skipping ahead a little bit right now into another section with the TRBs. But um, in terms of concerns over security of who's coming in and whatnot, 
when I initially heard the stories of a portion of our bar being really concerned about uh, not enough uh, investigation and whatnot, my immediate thought was, oh, they probably don't know. They haven't seen the actual application process that they're actually being asked for much more information than we would normally. So I thought, oh, like if there was proper messaging, this could be averted. I'm not sure if that part of the bar has that information and still thinks it's not enough. Like that's also part of the problem, right? But clear communication on what the impetus is, what the policies are, what the process is, and what they're willing to be flexible on or not would have been super, super helpful, would have, um, you know, put out so many fires and, and distress and panic, but here we are. Yeah, the government's trying to walk a, a vague, a, yeah, I mean, the whole, we'll come back to the government and uh, how they, they approach. What has sort of puzzled me about the TRV program, as I mentioned, the Sudanese program earlier, and it's not clear to me because both programs were announced within a week of each other. And it hasn't been clear to me why there's a thousand spots for Gaza and somewhere over 3000 spots for Sudan and why Gaza is a temporary program and Sudan is a permanent program. That's sort of been like my big puzzlement just because both programs were announced so close. Um, and as far as I know, that there hasn't been any explanation given on this. Um, so, so the government's explanation um, that was provided to community members was that uh, they're not sure. The size seems to be reflective of they're not sure if people will be allowed to exit. Um, obviously, you know, Palestine has a population of 5, 5 million, sorry, for the most part from reports, Google searches and whatnot. So a, a thousand is clearly not not enough for for the distress that they're experiencing, the crisis that are, they're experiencing. But the government's explanation of that number, for better or for worse, whatever you want to take it at, was that they, they were basically going to see if um, even a thousand could leave before. Yeah. I think it's limited to Gaza. It doesn't include the West Bank, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. I mean, the, I, while I get that, the, the one of, and we'll get onto this, I'm sure, the consent to disclose personal information form includes a consent. I understand, blah, 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 that I may not be permitted to leave Gaza. So I just don't understand how that goes to, like, so people who are signing up to this program need to recognize that they may not be permitted to leave. So how that then translates in them into them having to cap the program to 1000. Like I, I still, I, I don't, I don't get it. So, so I'll, I can clarify that as well. So there's a, there's a, if the anchor relatives approved, then there's a second stage, which is that they have to make, uh, the a visitor visa application, we'll talk about the contents of that, <laughs> but the visitor visa application itself basically runs on two stages, okay? The first stage is based on the information and much more than normally requested, but based on the information the applicant provides, there's an initial decision, kind of like an approval in principle. There's an initial decision as to whether the government 
intends to approve that application or not. And that approval will then be used to secure your exit from um, uh, Gaza if you can. And if you can and you end up on the Egypt side, then you have to submit to biometrics, which is a standard requirement on TRV applications. And if your TR, if that security, the full security clearance is uh, approved and accepted, then you actually get an approval. So really, the thousand will be for people actually approved and ready to come, but it's run through this, um, you know, practically limited funneling system to enable that to occur. Yeah. Just one last on the uh, expression of interest system. I've been emailing with uh, Nassim Mituani who was saying that something that she's noticed is that expressions of interests don't seem to be being processed in first come, first serve. So I'll read what she said, and I got her permission to read what she said, which is, um, there have been decisions already where expressions of interest were deemed incomplete, perhaps incorrectly, and therefore a code wasn't issued. Others have gotten codes before people who submitted earlier expressions of interest Some people are still waiting on codes or information about their expressions of interest, despite applying on the first day. My sense is that the expressions of interests are being reviewed by a team, and it depends on the speed of the officer reviewing the file as to when a code will be issued. The timing of the code is key because the code is what allows an individual to put forward an application. Is that uh, a concern you've seen as well, that um, expressions of interest don't seem to be going first come, first serve? Absolutely. So like I said, uh, uh, several colleagues reported at day nine, so not yet, not yesterday, the day before, I think, that they were finally getting responses to their expressions of interest submitted on the first day on the nine, and that it seemed to be an incorrect determination that there was an issue with the statutory declaration. Mm-hmm. And then we're aware of people who uh, applied like end of day on the nine for the 10th, who got the code and who are now in the visa process and onwards. So um, I I can't speak for the government. Maybe uh, it's the vetting process that takes longer for some and not others. I don't know. But I know the outcome of that vetting process isn't coming out on a first come first. Like it's not responsive to who filed first or whatnot. So maybe they're doing whatever checks on the anchor relative, and that might be quick or longer, depending yeah. on the circumstances. I, I don't know. And so then people apply. I had a tweet about how the form asks uh, applicants to provide information normally not seen in a visitor visa application, including any disciplinary actions they've ever had at employment since they turned 16, any scars or injuries, social media, and whatnot. Um, And so assuming someone provides all that, the other two things that uh, I guess we can move on. Before you move forward, can can we talk about that for one sec? Yeah, for sure. So, and I apologize, I've had a cough for over a month. It is what it is. Um, So so the second stage also is running on against this clock, right, of trying to get to the thousand. And so... The form is uh, asking for information that I've never seen in other contexts. The government has explained that it's the it's the same, the exact same, but maybe not form as used for the Afghan situation. Uh, but when I've discussed uh, with colleagues who uh, represented 
uh, applicants applying under the Afghan program, they do not recall such degree of information being asked. That aside, the degree of information being asked is uh, difficult to gather under normal circumstances, much less when someone's under duress, uh, malnutrition, dehydration, um, and constantly being bombed and, and fear of death. Um, but uh, the they run an additional layer of duress when hitting up against that, which is that either they have to decide to wait as long as it takes for them to gather as much of their pieces of memory as possible, because most obviously don't have access to any of their paperwork, um, or um, oftentimes even like uh, data and internet and whatever, where they could maybe look for digital archives of whatever they might have. So mostly they're running on memory. And memory under duress, obviously, is difficult to access. But so they have to decide whether they're going to wait it out to get as much information so they don't get an incomplete determination versus, and we're not sure, we're not sure if it's going to lead to an incomplete determination if they don't provide that information or whether the government will come and ask for more information or whatnot. And for that reason, they're under extreme distress to provide as much as possible. And then the other side, of course, is you want to just bypass and provide what little you can to just move on and meet the thousand. So it's a it's a really difficult position to find themselves in when they're trying to, you know, save their lives. Yeah, the um, I also don't understand. Like, I can kind of see what they're looking. Assuming that what they're looking for is this is all a very indirect way to ascertain if someone may have been a member of a group that Canada has declared to be a terrorist organization. I can kind of see where, I mean, I've seen cases where, you know, people post stuff on social media. Scars and injuries, I can, I I guess, see it if someone, you know, got a scar doing something that might suggest, you know, nefarious activities. I don't understand the employment history and disciplinary measures for every past job. Like I've, I've tried to stretch out like what what could be the relevance of this and I haven't been able to figure it out. I don't know if either of you can see where every disciplinary measure since someone turned 16 at work would factor into something material for a visitor visa. I haven't turned my mind to that, but just off the top of my head, it might uh, be seeking to capture situations because a lot of Palestinians get work visas to work on the Israeli side. <laughs> so maybe they're trying to capture situations where there was a conflict between, you know, an Israeli national that might have been an employer versus a, a Palestinian national that might have been an employee. I, I don't know. Just putting that out there. Yeah. And then the other part of the process, well, two parts, I guess. First, the the forms, I think, state that all information being provided will be shared with Canada's security partners as well as Israel, um, and that Canada has no control over what anyone else does with the information, is my understanding. So here's the other part where I think messaging was so important and not adequately done. That is what the form says, but when specifically asked of IRCC what degree of information is being shared by uh, with the Israeli and Egyptian authorities, they confirmed that it's not to the to that degree. They confirmed that it's 
uh, or they've stated that it's, you know, your basic things like name, date of birth, passport number, and things like that. I, I have it in an email I can pull up later, the, the very specific things that they have confirmed is the limitation of what they're sharing uh, with those authorities. But then that raises, for me, additional questions. So Canada has been clear that this additional layer of information they're asking for is facilitative. So they're saying, we're trying to do this to help, to try to get you guys out as quickly as possible and to get as much of your security check and, and background check uh, done ahead of time as possible. So that information will give us um, information about who you are so we can start that process even before your exit, right? But for Canadian nationals, the concern is for someone not to come in with, you know, various admissibility issues. And Canada is satisfying that requirement by the biometric requirement that you're still required to fill once you're on the Egypt side. Mm -hmm. So if if Canada was worried about its own investigation, then it will fully have that opportunity once the person reaches Egypt, if they can. So the, the request to have that information ahead of time le- legitimately raises a lot of concern for individuals of who that's being shared with, right? And so the confirmation and it seemingly not necessarily publicly. So this has come through and some media snippets or our, our community discussions with the government that it's limited to that very limited set of details. Um, so A, that should be made public to kind of quell the panic a little bit because I know of individuals who have walked away from the ability to make this application because of their fear of who it's going to be shared with once they saw, saw that consent mm-hmm. portion. Um, but then that that really um, raises that question for me. I guess maybe really what they mean in terms of it being facilitative is so that they're not waiting as long when they're on the Egypt side for that security clearance to be complete and be able to come. So maybe what they mean is we're starting that process ahead of time so that the fingerprinting and biometric just confirms what we've already researched, that you're not a person of concern and we can immediately approve you to come. That's likely what's the, what the government's position is of, of this two-stage situation and, and the expanded degree of information being asked. But because they're not being clear in that messaging and because the form is blanket that all information is being shared clearly the impression it gives is all of that information about your social media handles your scars your work history and uh, the rest are going to be shared who controls if someone leaves gaza through the gaza egyptian border is that israel controls that egypt controls that is it joint uh Israel con- controls uh, the exit permission. Egypt controls the entry permission. Um, and uh, they allow entry for 72 hours. Uh, and that coincides with the, the government. So someone exiting uh, Gaza, the government will pay for their housing for two days. 
for them to do biometrics and get things lined up. And their status there is valid for three days for the 72 hours. So if they if things take longer, A, they need to pay for their own um, hotel or whatever after the two-day mark. And B, they're supposed to seek an extension of their status from the Egyptian, Egyptian side themselves. Um, but in our discussions with government, they said that they have not seen any issues with that to date. It seems to be very facilitative. It seems to be something that people are doing on their own without issue. No one has reported to them, they reported, that there was an issue seeking getting an extension from Egypt. Obviously, there's issues. But they just have to pay their own. They just have to pay their own hotel if it takes longer. If it takes longer than the. Then if the biometrics, you know, are held up for. I mean, we've seen how long security checks can take in some cases, like. So that's the other and, question and I had I is, can they go back really to Gaza? Why, I guess that's the facilitative. That's yeah. maybe why the information is being requested ahead of time so that that could get started. So that hopefully in that two days, everything is done. And I, I mean, it's still very early on, but like if somebody fails their biometrics, are they able to go back to Gaza? Presumably, Yes, whether they would want to or not, I guess. And that would be Egypt having to let them out and Israel having to let them back in? Yes. Um, I don't think Egypt, uh, I'm not aware of Egypt having some exit controls that wouldn't allow them back in. Um, Yeah. Okay. Um, And as far as we know, I saw that yesterday or two days ago, the government announced that 144 applications had reached biometric stage. As of, you know, today, January 19, have any been approved that we know of? Certainly, I don't think they've announced. Um, I, I'm not aware of that. I, I'm aware of several uh, people who have submitted biometrics, who have been requested to get biometrics. So they've done the exit. They're now on the Egypt side doing that second stage, essentially, of the TRB side. Uh, but I personally have not heard of yeah. any. But if all works smooth, it should be in the next. Otherwise, these guys are going to be paying out of pocket to yeah. Yeah, stay in whatever hotel in Cairo. Lined uh, up to assist to with fees for that. Actually, I, I guess I should say that um, people should reach out to. Uh, from what I've been told, Islamic Relief Canada is assisting with some of those fees. Uh, Muslim Legal Support Center is assisting with uh, the legal side. If people need, um, you know, pro bono lawyers to assist. Um, And I know the Canadian Bar Association uh, is running a volunteer roster as well. And people can contact Jacqueline Bonasteel for that. Sorry, what was the first one? I'll put a link in the the show notes. Um, Islamic Relief Canada is assisting with fees on the ground for people who need to stay longer than the two days. And Muslim Legal Support Centre is coordinating uh, intakes and referrals to roster lawyers. And Canadian Bar Association, through Jacqueline Bonasteel, um, is also running uh, a roster pro bono lawyer initiative. Okay. Um, yeah, I found all those, so I can link to them. Okay. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So going through, I mean, I'd canvassed through my uh, Twitter to find different comments that uh, people had. Some of them we've answered, like, uh, is the intake process first come, first serve, um, which we've answered. I'll just look to the PowerPoint. It's going to be. Uh, the second is, has Canada negotiated with Egypt to allow those with Canadian visas to be able to cross the Rafa border to Egypt? Um, you've said yes. Wait, sorry. So there are people in Egypt now. So Israel did allow some people to leave. Yes. Okay. But, but th that's what I mean. It's controlled by the their ability to come over to Egypt is controlled by Israel's authority to control their exit. Okay. From my understanding, Egypt isn't making an issue necessarily of, of who walks in. They're granting those 72 hour visas um and seemingly extending them from what the government reported and seemingly ex extending them without issue. It's, it's just the authority to get out of Israel. That's the issue. And the government's taken the position that they, um, they have no uh, authority or control over that. It's okay. those governments making those decisions. No, I'm glad you clarified that. I didn't realize that uh, that aspect of the Egyptian Gaza border. Um, so I think this is a, so for, We've talked about this on the show before, the different ways that different groups get treated. And I think the big comparison that I saw, at least on my Twitter and what other people are saying is uh, the difference between this and Ukraine. Um, so for Ukraine, it was pretty much anyone from Ukraine at the start of the Russia-Ukraine war was allowed to apply for kind of a special visa the CUAT, Canada, Ukraine, authorization for emergency travel to travel to Canada. And that program obviously is more, the big distinction is there was no cap. So lots of distinctions. That lots of distinctions. Important. Yeah. Um, another big one is that for that program, a couple of them, and I, I posted on LinkedIn from Jafari Law on this. Um, one key one was the announcement of that program uh, made clear that there would be uh, flexibility on documents and things like that, that people may not be able to gather. But the announcement on the Palestinian side was that all regularly expected documents are required. So there's lots of messaging that there's flexibility, you know, explain your circumstances. But what, what I've expressed to, to government agents every time we've met is, you know, 
this, the explanations that will come forward on a case-by-case basis, which is I don't have access to these documents because either my house has been bombed, I, I don't, I, I literally have none of my possessions anymore, no documents, I can't get them. So if you know that at least a huge majority of the applicants are going to have that as their reason, then it would it would seem if there's flexibility for that, you would announce that up front rather than force people into making that request on a case-by-case basis. I'll leave it there. But on the Ukrainian side, that was specifically acknowledged up front. And the other uh, really notable difference, again, there's there's multiple when you look uh, into the weeds, but another really notable one is that announcement came with the commitment for a PR route as well that would come later, that would be announced later. And there's no such commitment on this side, of course. Yeah. Also no requirement for an, an anchor family member. And exactly. UAAP no two stage process, no invasive questioning. Now the government has said that, that um, the form that has circulated on Twitter and stuff and in media reports that, is asking all this additional information, social media handle scars, things like that. Um, the the government's position was that that uh, first rolled out two years ago with the Afghan program, um, and that this is now in circulation. Uh, and again, as I noted previously, um, colleagues working on Afghan, who I specifically put that question to and gave a copy of that form to, did not recall that degree of information being asked through that program. Yeah, and there can be all sorts of theories as to why there is a difference between the two programs. Um, I think it's probably as simple as, from what I've seen, there's 40,000-odd Palestinian Canadians and 1.26 million Ukrainian Canadians. Um, so just the... Uh, that's, that. that's interesting. Yeah, well, I just looked it up on Wikipedia. Um, another one that I've heard, which uh, is, you know, I think it's possible as well. And again, the government hasn't made any comparison between the two programs and why one went one way and the other is that with Ukraine, um, there were all sorts of countries who were taking in Ukrainians and Ukrainians could all just also, you know, leave and go to Poland, Romania. Um, and that there was also the restriction on men leaving Ukraine. So while men we're able to apply for these visas. A lot have never actually been able to leave. Um, whereas with Gaza, they aren't. There are no other countries that I'm aware of who are uh, taking in people from Gaza. Um, and there's also no limitation. Gazan imposed, I guess, on with whether men could leave or not. I don't know if that's the reason. It's one that I read that uh, sounded, you know somewhat possible um i'm also curious if the government because they're also closing the ukrainian the ability of ukrainian cuaet holders to enter canada in a few months even though the war there is arguably about to enter a very bad phase or possibly about to enter a very bad phase for ukraine and i wonder if they in part you know are now trying to like narrow down that program um i don't know if any of you have any you know Thoughts on the comparisons or possible reasons for why there's differences? No, I, I, I don't care to venture there. But just um, on the Ukrainian side, the policy ends um, shortly. Uh, but there are lots of uh, advocacy efforts to get that extended. 
Um, I, 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 this is a super complicated one. I get it. Um, at the same time, I think that what we see with this program is that there is recognition that there is a humanitarian crisis occurring in Gaza. There is a humanitarian crisis occurring in Gaza. It's called the crisis in Gaza. That's what this program is called. I feel like there's a lot of careful wording, careful marketing around this program, careful, careful PR. There's not even the word humanitarian in the name of the program. But I think that we can all agree that the purpose of this program was to respond to a humanitarian crisis in Gaza and to try and provide relief for people trying to flee a humanitarian crisis. So while I understand that Canada has the, the aim and the objective of doing security screening the way that they have the aim and objective of doing security screening with any intake, um, the differences here I do find shocking. Like I, I, I just can't help it, um, and I, I just, I do. <laughs> and um, the disparities in the way that this program is being run, um, just strictly looking at it from a new, like a supposedly neutral perspective, reading the forms, asking people trying to flee a humanitarian crisis to consent to the fact that they don't know how that information is going to be used that it's going to be shared and that Canada is washing their hands of responsibility for what might happen. Um, the optics of that are unacceptable in my view. Um, and, you know, like if I'm going to get um, pilloried by comments because of these, the, these, these, these sentiments, um, so be it. But, um, you, you know, um, anyways, I, I just, that's all I really have to say. I mean, I think that, um, you know, we see we see the forms. I do see that there's comparisons. I understand that there is a responsibility to make sure that, you know, that security clearance happens. But when you're seeing people's forms bounce because of defective things in statutory declarations and you're understanding the stress that the families are going through, knowing that there are a thousand only spots and they're getting technical bounces on stuff like this, like you can't even imagine the anguish that those families must be facing. Not just the families, uh, it's the families on the ground, it's the Canadian families, it's their representatives. I, yeah. I can't tell you the number of lawyers that I've talked to who are crying on a daily basis alongside their family members under utter distress and duress, not able to eat or sleep alongside their clients, and partly by, you know, I, I haven't taken on any of these cases because of yeah. all that I anticipated coming. And many who are declining media uh, requests because of their emotions tied part and parcel to what they're experiencing alongside their clients it, it, it's a it's an incredibly difficult situation to be in for everybody everyone that's uh you know trying to grapple with understanding the the parameters the specifics the filling in the lines that weren't explained and what you would do you know for example the advice that i've had to like the the web form itself the crisis form that the expression of interest that they had to fill out on the first day so everyone's panicked everyone's trying to read and understand what to do and whatnot and the web form is not designed for this program it's a it's a normal kind of web form and representatives know that's where you know you have a uci you have an application number and it's supposed to be where you're going to follow up on something that's already been filed so everyone was panicked what do i fill out in those sections do i do a a uh, you, you leave it blank, then maybe it won't, it won't take it. It might be an issue. Do I do V and then zero, zero, zero? Like 
you know these are all yeah <laughs> minor details but when you're so minor. worried minor. about it being bounced if you get it wrong it, it's it's almost cruel like it's, it it's is cruel just... and I, I find like I mean I am I've been on my soapbox about this for a long time like when you look for example at how Canada runs its refugee system you come to Canada you make a refugee claim what's the first thing we do we issue a removal order against you now if we're looking at this from a user experience kind of a perspective that is cruel I can understand, you know, we can look at this from a systems perspective, but that is an act of cruelty. And then you're trying to say, okay, now come and give us an honest recounting of what your experience is. So it's the same sort of thing, but these are like, I mean, people would call them microaggressions. To me, it's much more than a microaggression. It's an aggression. And when I read this program, if you're looking at it as something that's supposed to be a humanitarian response, it is so full of microaggressions that it makes me want to puke. And so that, that's all I, I can say. And so, yeah, in terms of that, I'll give you another example, which was really the, the one major win we had on this issue, which is that when the minister announced the program, I, I, I listened to the press conference. And from what I understood, heard and colleagues have concurred, we heard from the minister's mouth that you don't need to wait till January 9th to start making these applications. So based on that information that we disseminated out to the community, people started making those applications. And when the policy came out, the details of the policy were announced simultaneously to it being live on the 9th. Then it was suddenly, if you applied previously, you need to reapply, but you know, we'll give you a refund. No one cares about the hundred dollars. They no. care about the distress of having to do this again. And now under the timeline. And so we really push back and saying, like, if you're already doing the vetting process for the anchor to get a code, there's no reason why that code shouldn't be supplemented to an existing application. If anything, they can provide the additional information that's now be coming through as being required in this program. See, again, it's a, a, a messaging issue. At the beginning, we didn't understand. We didn't understand. Why would you not just allow those applications to stay valid why would you require all this like okay i'm going to refund i'm going to do this all this additional work for the government and the applicant um when you could just attach that code to them then when we saw the codes come and go to the trv stage and saw the additional information being requested then we're like oh it's because if you proceed with the applications that are in existence they don't have this additional information that you want well okay the, the problems with that aside get that information and allow them to submit it through a web form and append it to the application. Thankfully, that was later accepted. Um, you know, it's been at least uh, a couple of days, uh, I, I think a week now, last Friday when we met, um, it was agreed that that would be um, happening and the guidelines have been updated to that. So that's a, 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 bit, a win, a small but big win. <laughs> but uh, some of the other items would have been... Um, really helpful as well. So the other thing that I had suggested, for example, is initially it was envisioned that the code would reserve your spot in the thousand for a period of time. Um, and that would be really helpful to kind of just, uh, you know, calm the panic a little so that they can access that information that for people who work. Yeah, that's with what trauma, I thought they were going to do initially. Yeah. For people who work with trauma, you really appreciate that when you're under panic, mm -hmm. And in that state of mind, accessing any information becomes really difficult, right? Mm. So anything to, to, you know, 
alleviate and, and kind of offset that is super helpful. So I said, okay, not the initial envision period of how, a, you know, a month or whatever, but even even three days, even three days, because then the, the issue for the government was we don't want people to wait and like hold spots that could go to people like in dire distress, whatever. Okay, totally understandable. But like three days should should could have been um, a window of much needed reprieve for some while still addressing the dire need of others to try to meet the program if someone like just couldn't get their paperwork together in time or whatnot but that hasn't um, been approved and it's not going to in the time that it's left I'm sure I'm, I'm still boggled by this whole thing about well the a thousand is there because we don't know how many we're going to get out like I just I don't I I, I don't I don't I, I don't really fully understand where this number even comes from. If the if the reason you can't get in is because of the anyways, I you don't I'm understand sure. or you don't believe? I don't understand. I really okay. don't. Yeah, I don't get it. Um yeah. going on to the next uh couple of tweets. I don't think I'm gonna reproduce them because some of them are a little bit inflammatory, but I think the uh this tweet can like it can be kind of just summarized as the security concern, which can be broken down into two aspects. There's uh, membership or support for terrorism or Hamas, and then um, anti-Semitic hate marches or just the general rise in anti-Semitism. And again, the reason I'm not producing the tweets is there's there's just some inflammatory language, uh, and I don't I don't necessarily i don't want people you know reading just wondering why i couldn't have just said what i just said instead of reproducing the tweets so as far as um membership or support for hamas goes membership in hamas would obviously render someone inadmissible to canada i assume they're screening for that um and that's what they're asking for in these questions as far as support for Hamas goes, I've pulled up um, the federal court, and I think it's the only decision that has addressed this, in an old decision by uh, Toronto Stop the War Coalition, uh, also known as the George Galloway case, way back in 2009. And it's a bit odd, the facts of the case. The minister then, Jason Kenney, I believe his staff made it I guess let George Galloway know somehow that if he applied for a visa, then they would rule him inadmissible to Canada for supporting Hamas, which they said made him a member of Hamas. Ultimately, a lot of the case was decided on um, whether a, I think, whether there was even a justiciable topic if there wasn't actually a decision, but what Justice Mosley actually, I believe, found there was that while membership has a broad definition in Canadian jurisprudence, it's not unlimited and mere support does not equal membership. Um, and I don't, I, as far as I know, that like I've tried to look up if that test has changed and it as far as I know, hasn't. So ignoring whether the people who are coming to Canada may or may not 
support Hamas or what their feelings are. Do you have any other thoughts on like the jurisprudence that there is this distinction between active membership and possibly passively supporting a terrorist organization leading to inadmissibility? Uh, that's a whole topic. So yep. respectfully, I'm going to decline to enter <laughs> into that foray right now. Uh, it is a concern, you know, who gets lumped in is a huge concern. You see that with designation of terrorist and, uh, organizations and states and things like that. The Iranian community is experiencing that right now with the recent sanctions and, and designations. So I, I, I'm not going to walk into that right now. Um, all I would say on you, you very correctly specify there's two aspects to that concern. The first concern is a is a inadmissibility, like the what there are legal parameters for already in processes. And to that, I would just say uh, to all the Canadians who are concerned, including our colleagues who you know have made seemingly some legal requests in that um, regard is that they these applicants will go through absolutely the exact same, if not more detailed security uh, vetting as any other person coming to Canada. So they are submitting to biometrics. Nothing is being waived. So you got to think in in terms of Ukraine, like we waived counterfoil, we, we waived documents. The, there was a lot more um, room for maybe someone to be concerned about what's happening, who's going to get through or, or whatnot. But with, with this group of applicants, not a single person is going to be allowed to come without full biometric security screening, Interpol checks and things like that. So that's what I would say on that side. But in terms of the anti-Semitism and the hate crimes and stuff, for sure, any kind of hate directed at an individual is problematic, whether it's anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-million other things. Okay? And for sure, that's a valid concern for all Canadians to have. And I'm assuming that's that's where the social media handles and things like that are possibly maybe more relevant. Um, and I think that should be a concern for all Canadians, for all kinds of targeted hate not just a demonstration against this community or that community or whatnot, targeted hate against individuals when your actual problem is a political one with the state actors is a big concern. And it's something that we should all be vigilant against no matter what. And I think the government is definitely mindful of that in their assessment um, under this program. It's very clear they're very vigilant of that, actually, in their assessment of this uh, group of applicants. For me, part of what is really so troubling about this entire, um, uh, not just about this conflict, but about how this has entered the public discourse is what it has meant is that Jewish means Zionist, means Israeli supporter, means um, hater of the Arab world. Um, Palestinian means anti-Semite, means terrorist, means, um, you know, wish somebody who wishes to kill Jewish people. And um, the intelligent, intellectual conversation has, to a large extent, been lost. 
And I see it not just in what's happening on social media. I see it in a very troubling way in the jurisprudence. Um, and I find that determinations around terrorism, around espionage, around all these sorts of things are becoming so blurred that I'm, 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 I'm haunted, I'm troubled to a terrifying extent by what is happening to our, to our immigration system. I mean, it's coming through in every single podcast we do. I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, truly afraid. Um, and so, you know, I've never before felt so, um, like I'm, I'm embarrassed about all of this, you know? Um, and so um, I hate the assumptions that are going to be made about me based on my own heritage, you know, and I, I don't know what to do with any of this. And so I find it just so troubling. And so um, I don't know. And I just, I'm, I, I, when I see cases coming out of the courts, I just find them so distressing. Like, are we really, is this really the discourse? Do I think that we need to stop people from killing other people and that we don't want that killing to be endorsed or, yeah, of course I, I think that, but I just think that these things that treat every person coming in from a, per, a certain area as being typecast, as being a terrorist, I, that's not the answer for me. I mean, I go back to what Pantea said from the very start, this is trauma laid upon trauma laid upon trauma. And I feel like all intellectual conversation has ended about it. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's nothing to add to that. It, well, it's extremely troubling. It's extremely uh, concerning and rampant. This issue more than any other has polarized uh Canadian society and international society so much, not, again, because it transcends the communities that are involved. It's an issue of, of uh, multi layers of trauma coupled mm -hmm. with, you know, decades of political tensions. And when you, when you consider that the majority of the people might be somewhere in between, but the, the extreme of both sides is to wipe out the other that that's, a legitimate fact right if you don't believe in a two-state solution then one side or the other like their their existence is uh, threatened right and so when you add that to the layers of trauma that are engaged people aren't being reasonable and rational and academic and politically correct and all the other things we would expect of nice canadians and and whatnot so you know, people have said, oh, people's true colors are coming out. And I understand, I deeply understand why, you know, we, we would attribute negativity to individuals based on that. But I would implore Canadian society, our colleagues, everyone to to look at that through the lens of the, the traumas and the existential crisis that the person is experiencing as they utter the things that you find so challenging. I think the only way forward is if we can focus, as another colleague uh, aptly said, if we focus on our common humanity, our humanity as individuals who have been persecuted, who are targeted or whatnot, if we focus on, sadly, the victimhood that's shared between the, the communities versus everything else that's getting the center and spotlight, 
that might be, and I, I think is the only way to kind of bridge gaps going forward. Focusing on the other stuff is only going to make those divisive uh, lines further and further entrenched, those friendships further strained, those relationships and communities now that at polar opposites. You, you know, before this conflict, the people across those communities were friends, were mentors, were colleagues. And now everyone's like, oh, but that person posted this and that person posted that. You know, it, it's it, it's an extremely difficult time globally, yeah. not just for us. Yeah, I mean, my comment on the, the anti-Semitism is like, I, I've seen some of what's going on all through social media. I haven't personally seen it, but I've seen what's going on. And I do think, you know, WTF, um, where are the authorities? And, but that's, that kind of transcends this issue, just like we saw with the truckers. We saw like there is a general re reluctance on the part of the authorities to address certain things. I don't associate that with, this immigration program for the 1000 Gazans, or if it's increased more than that. And maybe I'm like, maybe, you know, as someone who's not living through it, I'm wrong about this, but from what I can tell watching videos that are sent to me, it's also not, it doesn't seem like it's the communities that are most impacted that are the most extreme in their viewpoints and are instigating things. Um, some of the stuff, like I follow the Vancouver, some of the videos that are shared of things happening in Vancouver, and it's the ones that I've seen for the most part have been career protesters who will go from one issue to the next, looking to instigate with the police. And what I've actually noted about the the Gazan resettlement, and I know resettlement has become a complex term, but again, I hope people just don't attack us for the words that we use, is that, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this too, like, I think that there is less fear in the general public, ironically, maybe not the, the bar, but in the general public, than there was during the Syrian resettlement. Like, I remember that being more divisive than this. Um, I think it's the, because of the the quantity you there was more fear than you said was yeah i feel like there was in the general public i think the what's sort of ironic is that i feel like the general public has not reacted fearfully to because the I gas and resettlement has accept has has stated any real intent to resettle gasms i think that's why i mean with the syrian crisis there was much more an over overt statement by the Canadian government about an intent to offer humanitarian aid. I don't think that that's there unless you're thinking that this 1000 TRVs with like, please give us your DNA sample is supposed to be this gesture of um, that offer. So I, I don't think that it's risen to that level. I think that Canadians feel that Canada will side with Israel. I, I, I honestly do. It could be. I mean, like, I, I, I've always felt that I come at a lot of this stuff with a very, very childlike attitude. And um, I've always been a little bit embarrassed about the nature of this childlike attitude I have. And so I've been going very much since, I, I would say, 
probably even before, but especially since October the 7th, in search of other scholars and intellectual people who share these childlike views to kind of reassure myself that, because I know I don't come at it from a naive place, I come at it from a, a genuine, intellectual, curious um, um, place. And one of the things that really stood out for me um, was something that Naomi Klein said is that that we can't use this is from a, a thing that she wrote in The Guardian about we cannot use the real collective trauma suffered by the Jewish people as the bottomless excuse and cover story to justify depopulation of Gaza of Palestinians. That would be letting impunity reign. And I know that like saying this on the podcast is going to <laughs> to to garner like endless amounts of criticism, but it, she goes on to say impunity like that will swallow not only one country, but every country with which it is allied. It will swallow the entire international architecture of humanitarian law forged in the flames of the Nazi Holocaust if we let it. And this is sort of like when I went into studying international humanitarian law, it's about how do we prevent these kinds of giant atrocities being committed by one group against another. And so again, when I was looking at what people were saying, um, you know, Amira Haas, the journalist, was talking about like all of these dire warnings that she's been making over so many years about the danger of brutalization and just um, feeling like, you know, that's that's here now, you know. And I don't know. I'm I I just always wondered, you know, how could the circumstances that led to the Holocaust ever have occurred, you know, and I'm, I'm just sitting here and I think so many people are sitting here right now and we're just watching the events that are occurring today unfold and um, just the amount of rage and the amount of hatred and the amount of aggression and the kind of like um, the, the lack of, of discussion that is going on. I think, I think that that, you know, the, the, the fear um, the being driven by fear and how that has atrophied any real dialogue. I, I don't know. Especially when you layer onto that, you know, uh, Netanyahu's statement that the day after the war, he intends for there to be a one single state. Right. So yeah. Yeah. Very difficult times. Yeah. So that kind of, you know, I'm, I'm wary of like layering on difficult topic after difficult topic, but the other I'll just subset of tweets, yeah, <laughs> the other subset of uh, responses to uh, my, you know, announcement that we were doing this episode or my tweet about what uh, the Gazans are being asked to provide was, what about Israel? So, and should Israelis be restricted? Um, I know the United States is restricting settlers in certain circumstances in the West Bank. The as you know, as of right now, I don't actually know what the state of the International Court of Justice determination process is or how long it takes, but it is possible um, that they will rule that Israel is committing genocide. Um, and I don't necessarily want to get into a debate about whether or not Israel is committing genocide. But 
one of the consequences of that, and Canada has said that they abide by the, they will abide by the decision, would be, and I don't think this would flow automatic, but if they will be abiding by the decision, um, Section 351B of the Act provides that the whole senior level of government could be banned from Canada, which, you know, Pente, you'd mentioned that uh, Iran currently is subject to that as well. So I don't know if you guys are finding this too, but I mean, I know there are, I mean, I have certainly heard from people who have served part of their regular military service in the Israeli army and they are facing huge additional amounts of screening. And I don't know why, what that's going to lead to the same way that every person coming from China is facing huge amounts of additional screening. It just right now means it's tripling their processing time. And so um, I don't know if that's everybody. I don't know what it's going to lead to. Um, but again, it's sort of like, um, you know, um, I, I just feel like Canada's right now in this very complicated hunch for who's who's bad. Well, you know what I compared it to? The Oprah meme of you get a car, you get a car, except it's like this group's inadmissible and this group's inadmissible. And they're just like, it's just encompassing more and more people, which may actually lead uh, to the law being narrowed because eventually there's going to be so many swaths of people who are inadmissible. I mean, the other one likely to happen this year, if I had to guess, would be the I always pronounce this wrong or say it wrong. The Iranian Republican Guard Corps being designated a terrorist group seems like a matter of time. Um, Trudeau has said that he wants to do it responsibly, which to me, you know, would include considering the immigration consequences. Um, and one thing I'm curious, like you know, you're going moving away from Gaza to that topic is, and I was uh chatting about this briefly during an overseas lawyers group is if you take some of the logic currently being applied to Chinese people, which is that, well, in the future, they may be co-opted by the Chinese government into giving information in Iran, like maybe I'm wrong on this, but my understanding is anyone can be drafted into the uh, IRGC. So like in theory, I'm not saying this is the case and that this will be the case, but in theory, the way the law is so quickly evolving, you could be like, well, any child from Iran would be like potentially inadmissible using this logic of may in the future be co-opted. And it does just feel like there's all these groups that um, as the law evolves and expands and, uh, you know, everyone wants to say this group is now terrorist, that this group is, you know, genocide that like, Immigration law, I don't think, is set up for this, for the inadmissibility sections, for this broad an interpretation of who's excluded. Well, I think it is set up for it because I feel like they are currently um, taking such an expansive view that it is starting to stretch to um, exclusion based on belief. I think that that's sort of where the Galloway decision that you referenced um, it was not held up at that time, but I feel like sort of where we are headed with the type of investigation that is going on under this program is that um, it's sort of, it, it, it strikes me that what they are talking about is exclusion based on belief. 
exclusion based because I mean it's not about whether or not we're talking about like trying to establish what your beliefs are who you support you know not whether or not you've been actively involved but whether or not you support and this is a very nuanced and complicated topic when you are let's say for example in a place you might be a child you might be a child who has experienced bombing on your territory and fear like danger to your life and you might formulate opinions based on that experience um you know, and now because you have formulated, so a child who is experiencing Israeli bombs throughout their life might say, I have this opinion about those people. And then that, that could, in theory, mean that you are supporting terrorists. You know, I, these, I mean, you sort of have to look at a, a worst case scenario about what conclusions could be drawn. So a, a child or a young person who formulates these opinions I, I don't know, Steve, this just, this stuff gets real murky to me real quick, <laughs> you know? And so I understand that, um, that, uh, you know, that there is a, a real desire to prevent the wrong people from entering Canada. But, um, but I just wonder who's policing this, you know? Um, and part of the reason I'm giving you this response is because one of the responses to your tweet was, um, a video with children expressing anti-Semitic feelings. And I found this just so upsetting, this video, because like, what's the message here that, you know, there are children who are anti-Semitic and like, so we should exclude them? Like what, I, I really had trouble understanding what we were supposed to take away from this video. Of course they would feel that way. They're being bombed, you know, like they're children, they're traumatized, they're terrified, like, of course. And so, um, I, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I'm not even sure where I'm going with all that, but I just, um, yeah, I think trying to police on the basis of who you support and what your beliefs are, um, it just gets really cloudy. Do you think, like, is that a concern that you have in the future, or do you think that they've already, like, I think we're already doing that. You think it's already happening? Oh, yeah. I mean, we'll see where the... I conveniently declined the comment. <laughs> no, I mean, like I said at the outset, like this is a this is a whole podcast in and of itself, just this inadmissibility issue. So I don't think it's it's fair to our audience or ourselves to kind of tiptoe into it now without the full discussion of the 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 layers that need to become a part of that conversation for it to be meaningful so i don't want listeners to just walk away with snippets that doesn't no, capture the complexity of the issue so i am going to decline to comment um but i think um steven you were talking about you know what would happen if the icj decision comes out positive uh and just one comment on that is that it presumably if canada was to uh, comply with the court's order, accept it, and act on it, they would need to immediately put a, a visa requirement on Israeli citizens and so that they can vet, you know, who the actors are that are applying and things like that. So that will be interesting to watch. Is that, that um, I don't even know if the, I don't know how long the ICG takes to make judgments. I think they're also hearing Russia at the same time. But is that, is that in, 
is that like like if so is that what you said based on a provision of the law or just like how the how the act would have to be interpreted in order to vet people like i'm aware of the 351b which says they can designate the top half um of a government and the public service and the military inadmissible if the minister is of the opinion that they've committed genocide i guess logically like they would have to impose a trv requirement but is that specified in the act or just what practically would have to happen yeah I, i'm not sure about the act i i would have to dig through it to see if there's a, a special provision on dictating what to do in that situation, but a practical requirement for you to be able to have the opportunity to, to vet that would be through a TRV process so that you can do biometrics and things like that. Exactly what everyone else is going through right now. Right. Yeah. No. And I think that's going to be something like the, uh, the big, I don't know how long again, the ICJ will take, um, but it could be there could be huge immigration implications. Uh, we originally planned on you know shortening these podcasts to thirty to forty five minutes, and I think we're running close to ninety, um, which has been a trend. Uh, any last comments or thoughts? I think we've hit a, a pretty much. I mean, we've hit all the topics that we wanted to cover. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.